0: Hello friends, thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible, with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Spotify, Anchor, or anywhere else. By doing so, you'll help others find the help which just might save their life. Also, please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops. And always remember to recover out loud. Hello, all you beautiful souls. Thank you so much for joining me for another edition of Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. As my longtime listeners know, sometimes I have bonus episodes that are completely outside the scope of what I normally do in the show, which is being an aggregate for trauma recovery. However, this show is doing a, a little bit of both. Um, there's nothing. No, I'm going to reword that. Uh, one of the most important things in recovery is being mindful of your speech and your thought processes. And to do that correctly, it has to be done with critical thought. A lot of people fancy themselves critical thinkers, but actually aren't. So when I actually hear a conversation using critical thought correctly, I just love it. It's like a candy <laughs> store for me. And I, I no one's doing it. It's so rare. No one's doing it, right? Yeah, yeah. It is so rare. um, I have on the show today a shining example of how to have a proper conversation with respect without jumping to conclusions or making assumptions or conjecture. Taking your ego out of it, just looking at the facts and having a real meaningful adult conversation. On the show today is the host of Trish Wood is critical. Trish Wood. Hi, my friend.
1: Hi there. Hi. How are you doing?
0: Well, thrilled because I'm a fanboy. <laughs> oh, well,
1: I'm a fan too because I, I have to say, as I, I was saying just before we we came on, I was having a bit of a meltdown about the way I look on camera today, which is one of the. It's a hard part of being an aging woman in in the podcasting world, right? I need the Carrie Lake filter, you know. <laughs> <laughs> She's got this great say that. Anyway, but I I love our soldiers and service people so much that I am doing this. So, um so so what I want to say about that is just that I feel that anybody who supports soldiers like I I'm kind of anti-war, but my motto is hate the war, love the soldier. That's how exactly. I feel about it. And and I feel that way because you know, everybody's been so screwed over for like Gulf of Tonkin was a lie incubator story about kuwait was a lie weapons of mass destruction was a lie and so what's happening is just to kind of jump into it and i know you know this better than anybody because it's show you're doing but but when you realize that part of what is brought home from these places is a moral injury because they go there i mean i did a book about the iraq war it's called what was asked of us here it is boom see that's it And it's an oral history. So, so I just, I talked to all the people who'd been, or many people who'd been, and most of them signed up after 9 11. They thought that Saddam Hussein was behind 9 11 and that he was going to, you know, blow up the world with nuclear weapons. All of it was bullshit, obviously. And, so here are these guys, so, so, so as you all well know, two things happen when you go to war, it's always way worse than, you, than they tell you, right, you're never prepared for the bang bang and the explosions and the death, but then to add to that, trauma is the, the realization for these kids, many of whom were quite young, some of them were like 17, 18 years old, I think they lied to get in, um, that they'd been lied to to get them to sign up to go and fight this war, right? So so that adds another layer of trauma. And I learned in in doing the book and talking to these mostly men, some women too, that um that that moral injury is actually as much of a problem for them to recover from because you feel like you've been betrayed by your country, right?
0: Yeah. If not the worst. Um the moral injury of sometimes what you've done yourself if Yeah if you took a life and you're not so sure that you were the good guy in that scenario, that is a horrific cross to bear. And also how you can be treated by your own people on our tour. um, I was in Croatia during the civil war in 94. Yeah. Uh, So the war was 92 to 95 or somewhere in the middle. And our particular tour was infamous for, not the bombs and the bullets and the bodies, but how we were treated by our own people was by far the worst part.
1: Because own people meaning what? You mean Canadians? Yes. Is that what you mean? Oh, oh is that right? Okay, sorry.
0: Yeah, yeah. by we're tra- how we were treated by our own uh, leadership, by the, the colonel at the time, all the way down to uh, a left a platoon commander. And when you are treated um, in a horrific way, Dehumanized for no good reason—that's tough to take. But none of us mind working for three, four days without any sleep if there's a reason. We yeah. none of us mind um, uh, doing horrific things if there's a reason. And if there's—but uh, if you're if you're put through the meat grinder for no other reason than it's a bad idea by your leader that you can't say no to—but there's no actual yeah. reason behind it. That's mm-hmm. a, that is a betrayal that um, is really tough Huge. to take, and all these years later, yeah. uh, the conversations come up, and the guys still get fist clenched, jaws locked, angry about it because of some of the stuff that was done to us.
1: Yeah, it's terrible, and um, you know, for the the thing that I learned, I guess, from the book mostly. I mean from that time period of interviewing these guys cuz I didn't know what I was going to learn like I I it was an it was one of the first books I came out just after generation kill you know so it was one of the first books about the Iraq war it was quite early and um so I didn't know what I was going to hear but what I learned was that the the bang bang was not really the problem in Iraq right like they that the run up to Baghdad was pretty successful fast right and they did what they were supposed to do um, but then, uh, later when the war became an insurgency war is when things really changed. So my understanding of the problem for them was that when the war became no longer kind of a mono, a mono shooting at each other, right? Which is kind of easier to deal with. There's some kind of odd fairness in that equation, right? So what happened to the guys who served in Iraq was that, um, they, started dealing with explosions specifically right and they were either suicide bombers or IEDs and they went from shooting each other very quickly to explosions over which they had no control right they 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 so you never it wasn't like you were going outside the, the wire to have a fight like you'd just be driving or walking to the Coke machine or something and all of a sudden wham oh, there'd be this huge Thing and then, as you know, that what's left after those events of the human body is not not very much, right? I, I know that because I interviewed the guy who was the mortuary affairs director for the Marine Corps in Fallujah. Fallujah, right? Uh, he a um, he was a a, a um, what do you call it? He was a like a mortuary affairs. He was a, a an Corner. undertaker, an undertaker. Well, he was an undertaker. Actually, his family. In Lawrence, Mass, ran an undertake a funeral home. That's what they did. Um, and so he he told me stories about they they would go um, out. There'd been an explosion in Humvee. Five people were blown up, and they had to put a flag for every piece of the body part that was there. Trigger warning for people, I guess and I should say. Um, and he said after this one particular explosion, they there were five people and there was like 5,000 little yellow flags, right? Which, which, which represented stuff they had to pick up because with the Marine Corps, they weren't just, they, they were, they, they had to send back everything, right? So in the casket going back to um, Andrews Air Force Base, I think is where they fly them in. It it could be just like a, a casket full of body parts, right? And they would have everything. They wouldn't leave anything behind. So that's what he did in Fallujah, And, um, he was not, there was actually a story written about him when he got back, he had kind of a meltdown, but, um, and not doing well at all. And, and I think it wasn't just the gore of it. I think it was also the suddenness of it, the unfairness of it. And the fact that the people in these little Iraqi towns probably knew something about it. So, so here we are liberating you people and you're letting them, plant a massive bomb in the middle of the roadway here, knowing it's going to kill us if it goes off. So it, it was very effective, that kind of weapon, right? You can't win over that, I think, um, because it turns the the soldiers obviously against the citizenry. Why wouldn't they be mad about it, right? So, so that was one of the things I learned, and I don't think there's anybody in the book who served during that time, during the insurgency time, who was not deeply, deeply... Um, damaged by, by what happened and so then you say you know this is terrible why are they sending our kids to do this like what what why are we wearing this and they come home and there's nothing really for them here as far or not here i mean in america as far as um you know um sorry uh, mental health centers for them right so it's, it's it's a terrible thing. And I, I believe what's happening now in America, as you probably know, is that the Republican Party is kind of becoming the anti-war party, in a sense, right? And I think it's becoming an anti-war party because this keeps happening over the lie to get in, the war goes south, it doesn't achieve what it was supposed to achieve, right? And you've got all these lovely kids, you know, coming back, Um and um, and not being looked after properly. I mean, why 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 is the is the tunnel to towers pe- people doing all the money raising for houses for these guys who lost four limbs? Like, why aren't why isn't why isn't the military doing that? Like, why does it have to be up to the taxpayers? To, I mean, the taxpayers anyway, but to, to the public to to do that right? That there's no rallying around these guys who gave gave so much, and that's kind of what was happening at the end of the Iraq War, too, because of the explosions. You don't get shot. You get um, to bits, right?
0: Well, there's a lack of understanding for various reasons of what actually happens in these war zones. Uh, the type of story that you just explained is not one of the types of stories that we tend to tell uh, for a couple of reasons. One, we just don't want to talk about it. Um, yeah. But two, because... Most can't understand what you're talking about. Like they can't picture it. Um, yeah. It's it's just too much. An example of that is when one of us are asked, have you ever killed anybody? As if that's, yeah. you know, not a big question, not personal. Um, mm. And as if it's a trivial thing. Of course, you know, it's not a trivial thing and it's an incredibly personal question. Um, but if they knew better, they'd do better. So, and that's why there's the Royal Canadian Legion and, and as how these things originally came together because we had nobody else to talk to. The only people that understood Good. each other was each other um, hmm. because after you do things like, and see things and experience things like seeing a friend of yours um, blown to smithereens. Um, I've always wondered too about the UN inspectors. They had the toughest, uh, grossest Did they? job ever. Well, on on my tour, I got lucky. I, despite what I did see, I didn't see the body pits, uh, but many of my friends did see the body pits and the UN inspectors, their jobs was to come in and body by body, corpse by corpse, man, woman, child, and baby, um, to log it all, uh, to cause a death, all of it. And, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, just unbelievably, gory thing but uh in all these years i i've never heard one of us uh in any scenario talking about the body pits but we all know about them and most of us have seen them and um i mean it was uh, nazi level stuff a great big pit full of bodies that we would mm-hmm. be guarding and and um uh keeping the predators away until the un inspectors which would, would uh, show up and oh. do what they do with all of them
1: Yeah. So, so that's really interesting that you say that you don't talk about it because when I was doing the book, it was almost kind of a magical thing. Like I I don't fully understand why these guys told me what they did. So here's what would happen. Let's say the guy from, um, I'm just going to look up his name here because I've forgotten it, but the guy who was the the funeral director from, his name was Daniel B. Cotnor was his name, right? And this is the guy who's the family owned the funeral home. Um, this is a very tough Marine. Like Marines are a different.
0: Oh, and I just lost Trish. So I don't know what happened there, but hope she joined. she's coming back. You're back. Am I gone? <laughs> okay. Okay.
1: So, so you know, they're not great with women and stuff, and I, I and, it's, and civilians too. Like, why well, would even trust me? But, but he did, and I think he did because the kind of stuff that he said to me in that interview, he probably never said it again to anybody. Hmm. He was never going to tell his wife that stuff because he didn't want. I, I, I felt like the way these things happen. I would ask a question of him, pretty direct question. And then he would talk. We were alone. It was audio only. We were alone in his place in Massachusetts, right? I drove. I flew to Boston and drove up my little rental car. And I feel that um, many of these guys wanted someone to be the repository of these stories. And they didn't want to share them with their wives because they were too gory. Almost, you almost can't, the level of gore, like you almost can't even, it's almost like like a circus act or something. Like you can't really even contemplate some of the, well, you can, but most people can't, right? So they come home, they don't want to sit at night, they're maybe ruminating on something they saw. They don't want to bother their wives. They don't want to contaminate their wives' brains with the stuff they saw, right? So so I would just sit there and ask a question. And I, Daniel and I talked, I got every detail of his story in about a, in a five hour session. Right. And uh, one of the things he told me, it was fascinating. I think the book was blessed in a way, a lot of amazing things happened. And, and you know what, in all the people I asked to speak to me for the book, no one said no. One guy said no, one guy said no. Cause he was doing his own book, but they all kind of wanted. it was really like a, a divine project in a sense. So Daniel told me the story. He was putting, preparing caskets with remains in uh, in Fallujah. And he was watching CNN on a monitor in the place where he was working, in the mortuary, in the Marine Corps mortuary. And on the screen, and it's so funny because I saw this happen too at the same time. On the screen was a van on fire in front of a house somewhere in Florida. And the story said, um, father of Marine Corps, you know, medic or whatever he was, um, who died in Iraq, lights Marine Corps van on fire, right? So what happened was the Marine Corps came to the house of this guy whose kid had just been killed in Iraq and the guy went nuts and um, lit the Marine Corps van on fire. He had a meltdown, right? Over the death of his kid. And so it was quite interesting because Daniel Cottonware was working on the remains of his kid in Fallujah while he was watching the kid's father melt down live on CNN newsfeed, right? It was like the most kind of bizarre thing in the whole world. And it gets even more weird than that. If you have a second, let me just wrap it up here. Cause this sure. really blew my mind. So I got to knew, know the father, this father, cause he became a pretty, um, devoted anti-war activist, right? So we kind of met a bit on that level. By that time, people realized the Iraq war was a pretty big mistake. And um, so I got to know him. He was a lovely chap, really devoted to keeping the memory of his son alive, right? So fast forward to the Boston bombing. And there's a really famous photograph from the Boston bombing of a guy in a wheelchair. With his legs blown off, and a guy pushing the wheelchair down the street toward the ambulance, and he's holding, pinching in his hand, his femoral artery. So he does, this kid doesn't bleed out, right? He's been bombed. Guess who it was? It was the father of that kid in Iraq, right? It was like mind blowing. I was looking at the picture, he had a cowboy hat on. I said, how can that be? How can that be? And it became a really famous story because, like, I, I, did, did the people who wrote the story understand that this kid, this guy's kid, was killed in Iraq and that he lit the van on fire? Now he's on the cover of Time magazine saving the life of another kid who's been blown up. Like, it was just totally, totally mind blowing. And the guy lived. He became a kind of a famous Boston bombing survivor, actually. And that photograph, when we've, we're finished here, you can Google it and you'll see. I think his. Name was Alessandro, something. It was a Hispanic name, right? And he's just pinching that femoral nerve closed or femoral vein closed so that he doesn't bleed out. It's amazing, right?
0: One of the I thi- guess doing
1: penance. One
0: of what? the things that I uh, try not to do and and I warn against um, within the veteran community is to not play the trauma Olympics. But uh, that being, <laughs> that being said, yeah. Oh, yeah. what that person went through, I mean, that's that's top tier right there. Yeah, yeah. because like. W- there's something about it when it, when something horrific happens in a war zone, you're already as much as you can be somewhat prepared for it, but you don't expect to be walking in downtown anywhere and blow mm-hmm. up. Uh, so there's something about that, that makes it worse so much worse um, yeah. because it's uh, it's a kind of sanctuary trauma. You're in a place where you should feel safe and, yeah when you are unsafe in the place that you should be safe, that should be a sanctuary, how do you ever feel safe again? Whereas when, when you're in a war, uh, you know that you're in the unsafe place, and then when you get home, uh, although the hypervigilance tends to keep going and yeah. <laughs> to, to an extreme, but um, at least there's a piece of you that knows that, okay, this is just hypervigilance, I'm actually safe. And then yeah. something like this happens, and it's like, okay, there is no safe place. You know, that's, yeah that's that's just something else.
1: Yeah, I know, but he see I feel that he was um I feel that he was trying to save his kid, right? So in saving that Boston bombing guy who was in his 20s, he was actually rescuing the kid. He lost in Iraq, I think that's what happened in that story. But I'll tell you one that worked out really well. Um so one of the Marines I interviewed from camp pendleton i just set up um a little i was in a little cottage there near camp pendleton and and i I had hired a he was a former marine who knew everybody really well and he was bringing me people to interview for the book right and um so this guy shows up and he's really traumatized he's like totally shaking and he was a matic he was a, a a corpsman a navy corpsman right and um, I adored him. He was a lovely guy, and he he ha- he ca- he carried with him in his laptop photographs of a lot of the people that he'd worked on in the field. So like super gory, right? And he couldn't let it go. Like he he just had these things, and I thought, wow, he's really ruminating on that. He's really focusing on that, right? And what happened to him was he came back like a lot of guys do, is drinking very heavily about it. And um, we talked about that because I'm a recovering alcoholic too. And I said, you can beat it. You can't, you know, AA really works. You've got to, you know, believe in absent recovery and stuff. And um, he got into a very, very bad car wreck in which he killed his cousin. It was a drunken driving car wreck where he killed his cousin. And he ended up going to jail for, you know, like four years or something for that crime. I had my own feelings about whether they should have jailed somebody who was that mentally ill, but he wanted to take responsibility for what had happened. And I I think part of it was because of, it was his cousin, you know, he wanted to do that. So he did. And we, he wrote me letters from jail. um, And he was going to AA in prison and stuff. And he came out, he was totally sober. And now like, I just, I interviewed him recently Um, And he's living in Texas and he's married and he's got kids and it's, he's good. Like he's really doing so very well. And he was a guy I didn't think was going to survive. He was an absolute mess when I met him and he's doing very well now. So that's a happy story, isn't it?
0: It is a happy story. And it's not easy in, in my family. There's at least three dead from alcohol and yeah. uh alcohol and substances. And what yeah. was the the turning point for you and and I love that you're very open uh that drinking was a big problem for you at one point. Uh, yeah. the, in your bio you say that it exploded your life. What does that mean? <laughs> How was your life exploded?
1: Well, uh you know, yeah, it's sort of a, a a weird story. Like I I was not I I was not a binge drinker. You know, I wasn't showing up for work drunk or anything like that. But I was making a lot of really stupid uh, life choices and and was sort of doomed by some pretty significant...
0: And Trish is frozen. Hopefully she'll come back here in a second. Trish joined. Oh, boy. Okay. So I will kick that one. Trish joined. Don't know what's going on. There we are, okay. (laughs) That that um, was weird, you're back.
1: Yeah, who knows? Yeah, who knows? So anyway, so, uh, you know, I I wasn't doing things like really obviously drinking, right? But, I mean, I was drinking a lot and it was ruining my life, but people, I was hiding it pretty well, is what I'm saying. So what got me was, I believe, and, and this is certainly what I say when I talk about it at AA, that what happened was when things kind of blew up for me professionally and what happened was actually not my fault, but what? But I'd been so badly behaved toward my colleagues and the people in my circle that nobody was riding to my rescue. So that can also be true. That's also a bottom, right, that you've kind of poisoned the well. Um,
0: what kind but, of bad behavior? What do you mean? What did that look like?
1: Um, I was no, I was not a very good friend. Um I think in my personal I know in my personal life I was less than honest with a lot of people for sure. I was a terrible wife. Um and not a very good mother. Although my kids have kind of let me off the hook now, but um but I I think I was not a very good mother. And and in the office, you know, I like I just My father died of alcoholism. I had a really weird childhood. And so I went from really thinking not very much of myself to being kind of rich and famous as a journalist really quickly. Like I I think I started Fifth Estate in my early 30s. They just kind of plucked me from, you know, radio and said, we're going to make you a star, which they did. And I was really, really good at it. But I wasn't. Good at living my life and always felt very fraudulent, you mm, know, imposter um, syndrome, yeah. And wasn't I wasn't I just wasn't enjoying it, like I, it was just I liked the work, but the other stuff. But what happens is you, you, um, when your life has been troubled that way, you don't get to do any spiritual work. So I was very, very externally referenced, I cared way too much about how I looked and what my clothes were like and what kind of car I was driving and how was my house decorated and all that kind of stuff, right? So when you lose that, which I did at once, right? It's a big problem. Like, it's like, what am I if I'm not a famous, well-dressed, blah, you know, I had no other, nothing else going for me. But also I had, I was having a relationship with someone who was also not exactly a stable guy. And so when My professional life blew up. So did my personal life. So I was literally, that's how I was left. I had no job. Um, I'd been hung out to dry by the media. So my reputation was screwed unfairly, but, you know, it happened. And then I was kind of, I I was abandoned by my my boyfriend and I was pregnant at the time. So I was like a single mom in the midst of all that too. So if that's not a way, if that's not God saying, dude, like, you know so I it was kind of funny so I had the baby which was wonderful forced me to stay home and be like a real stay-at-home mom which was good even though we were super poor which I also kind of enjoyed it became a game but that's what kicked me into AA right I, I and so that was changed everything every, everything for me at the end of the day and that was 22 years ago right Truman who was that baby he just graduated Dalhousie and he's here now doing really well and stuff so yeah but but that, you know, that is something I don't, I, I always say I don't regret that I went through that time of trial because it forced me to look at what actually makes a person a valuable human being. And I can slide into being a jerk naturally pretty quickly if I'm not checking myself a lot, you know, which we have to do in the program. Yeah, we can be pretty self-centered. That's the addicts thing, isn't it? self-centered
0: well it is um but it's because addiction is always a symptom not a cause it uh, bothers me when people still refer to any kind of addiction as a disease when i don't believe that's true i believe it's the symptom of uh, of an injury The, Mm -hmm. the injury being some sort of trauma uh I've spoken to addictions experts from around the world and I have not had anybody contradict that. It's a Gabor Mate way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe it's the right way of looking at it. And in my experience that that is true. So trauma is blinding and the symptoms mm-hmm. of trauma blind you. PT- that's the problem with addictions with PTSD is that you don't know that you're the asshole. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right yeah exactly and, and figuring that part out is the starting point of oh okay i'm the asshole now what yeah you know what do i do about that do i fix it or do i accept it do i run with it do i embrace it or do i do something different and grow out of this and learn how to not be this asshole and then suicide comes from a couple of different places uh one is okay i'm the asshole i don't know how to stop and i'm going to fall on the sword to save those around me because i don't want to hurt anybody and Mm -hmm. suicide comes from that and it comes from desperation
1: but -hmm. either way
0: the the mother of all of it is trauma Mm-hmm. Which is why mm-hmm. the more I do this show I thought I was going to do thirty or forty episodes and then I'd be done i'd have it all covered and here yeah. I am two hundred and fifty five or whatever it is in
1: and why do you think that is i mean why why do you think you've you've gone on so long with the focus on trauma what what, what do you think is driving your numbers that way
0: the more I do it the more I realize that there's more to do um, the digger I deep the the digger, the more there is to, to, to dig. There's
1: mm-hmm.
0: And there's part of what I do is be an aggregate for resources because there's all kinds of volunteer yeah. NGOs and uh, non-profits out there uh, in the States. I think the number, if I remember correctly, is 65,000 um, non-profit organizations that are there to support veterans. Yeah. So I don't know what that number is for Canada, but proportionately it's probably 10% of that. So either way, there's a lot and a lot more than I can uh, cover. So I, I go a bit more broader with um, different modalities of healing is what I try to find. Because yeah. what we're, the, the official system don't work. It don't work at all. The OSI yeah. clinics, uh, things that are provided by Veterans Affairs Canada, talk therapy has an efficacy rate between 12 and 15%. Well, that's not good enough. So I've yeah. I've been looking for the better mouse trap, and I keep finding more and more. And eventually, uh, I've started working on my third book now, and it's going to be a compendium of this show. It's uh, the the title of it is Romeo Root. So Romeo stands for recovery, and it's going to be everything that I've found from the show, boiled down and distilled to. This is this is how you do it. This is how you walk this walk. This is the route for recovery. So uh, that's a project that will be done when it's done. I don't have a time frame on it. And I still feel I have a lot more to to uh, learn before I can push forward. But it's a deep, deep well, Trish, and uh, there's there's a constant need. And of course, the fans that um, that reach out to me and tell me stories like the save my marriage, to save my life. I'm no longer suicidal. I found this help. I mm. found that help. Um, or those where it's the only resource they have. They don't have any other resource. It's my show and that's it. So how do I stop? I can't stop. I got to keep going.
1: Yeah. I mean that I'm in the same boat, you know, there's so many people who are so grateful for the straight talk about COVID that you just, that's sort of what keeps the lights on. But, um, you know, just in listening to it, it makes me think about the, because I I kind of got interested in this topic in the early 80s, I guess. And the guy who got me interested is a guy named Bobby Muller, who is a Marine who was uh, paralyzed in Vietnam by a sniper. Paralyzed from the chest down. Sort of a handsome guy, very dynamic personality. Came back and went to Hofstra Law School. And became a big advocate in the um, anti-war veterans' anti-war movement, Vietnam veterans against America, and all those guys. Right, John Kerry was in it, and all those guys, Ron Kovic, and those people. And Bobby ended up running an organization called um, Vietnam Veterans of America Foundation, which won a Nobel Prize because a Nobel Peace Prize, actually, because they were the ones who um, were were operationally running the ban the landmines campaigns and so he you know he I, I remember when i first met him back back then the guys who'd come back from vietnam were totally screwed over but they were also very proactive and i think it was the anti-war thing that kind of got them going um, and they started their rap groups right so that's kind of like i i, I kind of think that Maybe if back in the day they had podcasts that they'd be doing, kind of what you're doing, right? But what they were doing, they'd get together. The idea was that nobody can help a veteran like another veteran because they have this shared experience. And so they would have these rap groups all over. Uh, all over America for guys coming back who were in pretty rough shape. Obviously post Vietnam era was very bad for veterans because people for, it took years for them even to get a monument, right? Everybody was so mad at them as if it was their fault. It was terrible. Um, so they had to look after themselves and I think they really created a very healthy model for all of us, not just for veterans, but for anybody who's struggling, you know, the NAA, obviously it's the same thing in we sit around in a group of shared pain and addiction and help each other and and that's what the rap groups were sort of you know based on so that's what i and he actually wrote the he wrote the forward to to my book and we got reconnected because after this period of unemployment i had with a new baby he found out about it and he said it was in 2000 and uh just after it was just after 9 11. And he said, you know, they're going to go to war again and it's going to be terrible. And the media is doing the same thing they always do, which is that they don't tell the truth about it. And the guys are going to come back and they're all going to be ruined and no one's going to give a shit. Right. So what can we do? So he hired me and I was working for him. I worked for him for about two years flying back and forth between Toronto and Washington and, and um, reaching out to legacy media like the New York Times and places like that and saying, look, here's a story about this. Why don't you try to look at that or why don't you cover it from this way? And because here's what happened with, with Iraq and also Afghanistan, too, for the Americans, which is what I know more about, is that... Um, You'll remember with Iraq, they didn't think they were going to be there for very long, right? They thought, oh, six months, you know, or maybe a year at the most. They were there for what, like 11 years or something? Maybe a lo- longer. A long time. Long time. And so what that meant was that they didn't have the stuff in place to deal with the veterans coming back from there either. Where right? They thought they were going to be in and out. And they weren't. They were there for ages. And the injuries kept getting more and more severe because of the Landmines and stuff. So, so they weren't prepared at all for what was going to come back and how they were going to look after these people. That, that's always sort of the last, you know, thing that they think about is taking care of the people who, who are serving there.
0: And some of what you're talking about is so familiar to me because of uh, Medec Pocket. Are you familiar with Medec Pocket?
1: No. What's that?
0: <sighs> it always breaks my heart, especially uh, if some if it's somebody in in um, in media when um, Midak Pocket is a good example of how what happened in the Vietnam War where people didn't know what was going on, how that's still continuing today. So I was in Croatia in 94. In 93, the summer tour was the biggest battle since that Canadians have fought since Korea. It was a, about a four-day battle um, in the little town of Midak, a little pocket uh, known as Medak Pocket. And the boiled down version is is that there were 21 countries representing the united nations at the time but the only country really that anybody took seriously was us was the canadians so this uh village of medak um the un forces could see that they were about to be wiped out yet another village genocided and the french ran away they're like oh we can't handle this these guys are scrappy and they ran away and the canadians were there alone even though there was 21 countries there the canadians were there alone in sector south and um they decided to dig in and they they drew the line and they said sorry croats uh, no genocide today no killing for you we're uh, we're not going to have it And, of course, the Croats disagreed, and the fighting started. And for the first time since Korea, the Canadians dug uh, defensive trenches. They were outmanned, outgunned. Um, Not one in four days of wild firefights, uh, artillery, mortars, all of it, uh, no Canadians died. A few were wounded, but none died, and the death count of uh, the Croat forces is unknown, Uh, I've heard numbers uh, around 250. The official number was 27. The truth, nobody knows. And no Canadians know that our forces did that. It was the 2nd Battalion PPCLI augmented by uh, a couple of different reserve units, in particular the Calgary Highlanders. And I've covered it on my show a few times. Uh, I had Rudy Bajima, who was there in the fighting on the show, to, to tell the story but it's one of the many stories that need to be told that should be on the lips of every Canadian. And it's not.
1: Yeah. Why do you think it isn't?
0: We're the shits at telling our stories. Um, But this particular one, the Canadian government had a particular narrative of what a UN troop was. And it wasn't a warrior. We were care bears uh, that were running around hugging people and giving kids Snickers bars. And that was not the case. It was, it was, peacekeeping is a combat mission and they didn't want to admit that they had a, whether it was pressure from the UN to bury it, I don't know, but it was so buried that even within our own regiment, the only way we knew about it was uh, like kids learning about sex when they're 12 by talking to each other. And, um, and some of the stories would get out. And so we only knew from gossip basically of what happened, even though we were there a year Later, in the same area, there was no debriefing. I mean, it would be pretty damn hand, uh, handy intel to really know what happened there inside and out in case it happens to yeah. us, but um, that, that didn't happen. So, the Canadian government had an image to maintain for their UN peacekeepers, so they completely buried it, um, even <laughs> and wouldn't recognize it for about 15 years until after. Wow,
1: wow, that's a shocking story. Isn't it? I it's, wonder why that is. Why? Why? I just don't know why we don't talk about those things. You know, it's really strange. Someone well, maybe. Are you writing a book about it or something? You have to write a book about it now. You've said that.
0: Well, um, one great book about it that you might enjoy is *The Ghosts of Meek Pocket* by Carol Off. Uh, I've been trying. Oh, to, okay.
1: Uh, I know who Carol is. Yeah.
0: Uh, if you can make an intro, that'd be great. I've been trying to find her so I can get her on the show. I Haven't had a response yet. But, um, well, is
1: she still at As It Happens? I have no idea. Because she was hosting. She's married to Lyndon McIntyre, right? So, oh, okay. And she was my old co-host from the show, from Fifth Estate. But um, she was at As It Happens. Is she still at It I'm just going to Google while we're talking here, tell you where she is. Uh, did you reach out through her publisher?
0: I can't remember. I've reached out two or three times trying to get a hold of her. But, um, Carol let me,
1: off. let's see, there's a picture of her. I don't know if she's still hosting.
0: It's one of the books I haven't read yet myself. I actually find it very difficult to uh, read books about the Balkans because when you're reading yeah. a book, you get really into it and you start reliving yeah. it. And that's not yeah. good for me.
1: Okay. So here we go. Carol Loft stepping down as host of CBC radio as it happens. It's time to move on says the veteran broadcaster who's leaving after sixteen years. Stop globe trotting and start interested in trouble. She's really dubious. I don't know when she's going. When's she going? Hmm. I don't know, it doesn't say when, but soon, right? She's not gonna be there for very long. She may be gone by now even. I used to know her reasonably well, but, but and she's not a bad interviewer, but she's very woke, right? This okay. is the very, very, very woke, um, which is sad because she actually is, uh, you know a decent journalist. but like most people at CBS like she did an interview on uh, transgenderism on the there was a library issue. A speaker had come to a woman to t- talk about um, transgenderism you know, the kind of feminist side of the, of the fence. And uh, there was a big hoo-ha about it. And it was a, she did a very strange interview, but I'm surprised she was really kind of on the side of the transgender extremists. It really shook me up. But, but I think you can't work at CBC if you don't hold that view now, sadly.
0: What kind of, um, have you had any meaningful or damaging blowback from all the coverage that uh, you've had? <laughs> On, uh, I guess quite a bit. Then, so some of the stuff that uh, you cover, which I think is, I get the most fascinating response, is the impact of the COVID lockdowns. Um, What I have found is that if you simply say the basic truth of, yes, there was a negative. There was negative fallout. I mean, my family suffered. Yeah, they
1: killed people. They killed the lockdowns. Killed people.
0: They that's killed, what happened. They killed people. Period. Yeah, yeah. Um, suicide and 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 whatnot. Um, the response. That some of the one of the uh, fellas that is on my Facebook. Went, so it was a minor inconvenience. Quit your whining.
1: Yeah. Well, that's <laughs> pretty typical, isn't it? That well, you what, know the problem think, is.
0: Uh, when people lost their entire livelihoods, they lost their businesses that they spent their entire lives building, um, had family suicides, uh, have still ongoing serious mental health issues to this day, um, yeah. even though the lockdowns are are, are over. Uh, why do you think people are so incredibly cold and almost psychopathically cold cold and um, to the idea that there should be a little bit of at least empathy for for the suffering and how they see empathy um, asking for a little bit of recognition and empathy as whining. What do you think is going on there?
1: I, I, I mean, it's the, the, for me, that is, that is the $64,000 question of the way that we live right now and what has driven my podcast and other COVID projects I've got going is the search for the answer to that question. We, the COVID-19 policies, um, expose something about us that I think is very, very scary and very, very dangerous. I I I think
0: it could be as simple as the Jane Elliott experiment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, or Milgram or, you know, one of those. Yeah. But, um, I, I can't answer the question, and and it is it has fundamentally changed my relationship with many people in my neighborhood, in my life, in my family. Um, my friend, Ann Bauer, who is a novelist uh, from the States and an essayist and a really good one, uh, she's Jewish, and we had a big discussion about this. Like, why Why were people so quick to throw other people into the bus to rat out people who had too many people for Thanksgiving dinner to demand masking of children, all this awful stuff. Right. And she, she's completely baffled by it. And she says as a Jewish girl, her parents always told her that she should choose her friends based on who would hide her in the attic. Right. It's a great phrase. And um, she changed her whole friend group around what was happening she she was very anti-school closures and she's a big lefty she lives in minnesota she's obviously she's an artist she's a writer and so her friends were mostly lefties right and uh, they stopped talking to her she lost friends because she was against school closures so something has been exposed we can go from zero to 60 in a second um, I interviewed Laura Dodsworth, who exposed the the behavioral unit nudge operations coming out of Ottawa and DC and London, where they were manipulating us into being so scared that we would comply and obey. Um, you know, literally manipulating us with talking points and stuff that wasn't that weren't true. And 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 obviously, that's a shocking story that governments would do that. But I will tell you that what she said to me and I agree with that is that the more shocking thing is how quickly people went along with that too. Like how quickly the tyranny came and how quickly people's freedoms fell away and how quickly people said, Oh yeah. Okay. Well I'll do that because it's in the name of public health. Right.
0: Well that was always the excuse, but I think it's as simple. It could be as simple as when emotion is high, rationale is low and most people are cowards, which I have discovered over the last couple of years. I didn't know that. But most people are. Yeah, they are.
1: I'd say most people are cowards. Most,
0: yeah, I agree. The, the majority of people are cowards. And yeah. um, and I, and yeah. I don't see that in a finger-wagging, I'm superior way. Not at all. Um, yeah. I, I say it in a factual, observational way, that most yeah. people are cowards. And the greatest um, secret of most men is that they are cowards. And they will do anything to cover that up. Uh, This is where you see this in narcissism and all kinds of arrogance Uh, and the tough guy talkers, you know, really they're all terrified of somebody finding out that they're actually a coward. And um, that's where bullies are. Uh, One of of the things that uh, most soldiers are aware of, especially combat uh, frontline soldiers is that the boisterous bullies when shit hits the fan, they're always just the ones curled up into a, in the fetal position, sucking their thumb. Yeah. and I mean yeah. that actually, literally. Not surprised. Like, yeah, friends surprised. of mine have actually seen that exact s- s- scenario.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so that that is true. I mean, I, I think there's something was exposed um, about us, and not just about how individuals can behave really badly when they're frightened, but but also about the lack of cohesion in the communities in which we live. Um, You know, nobody goes to church. Most people don't know their neighbors anymore unless they live in a small town. Yeah. Um, And we're encouraged to have relationships with screens instead of with each other. Right. I was in, this is a small thing, but it felt really apocryphal for me. I was in Ikea in downtown Toronto with my kid getting stuff for his new apartment. And they literally did not have any live people to tally up the stuff we bought. It was all self-checkout, which I am morally opposed to, because every time you're doing that, you're putting somebody out of a job. Plus, I like to say, hello, how was your day today? And talk to the lady or the man on the counter, right? That's what makes life... That's why you go out to go shopping to meet some of the people who are there. That's your community, right? So I was really kind of bummed about it. We had to, well, Ikea had, there was like maybe two salespeople and Ikea can be really complicated, as you know.
0: <laughs> it's a labyrinth. Yeah, it's quite stressful. But it's a
1: labyrinth and the furniture, everything's complicated. And um, and so to go, like we had a whole shopping cart full of like stuff, you know, dishes and stuff like that, sheets. And um, to have to kind of do the self-checkout then too, it was like, so like why like ikea is not paying for any employees like they're like they're just it's just a store and you walk in and you have to figure it out and then you got to pay yourself and i'm not shitting on ikea specifically i don't know they must have other stores that aren't like that but but i just thought wow this is not a good shopping experience you know we did have the little swedish meatballs after with the lingonberry sauce so that made us kind of happy right there was people in the kitchen but, but the, the AI checkout thing is bugging me, and I'm trying. Also, Shoppers Drug Mart <laughs> did the same thing. I was there the other night, and um, there was one little girl behind the cash register, or what do they call it now, point of sale, and, um, and there was five AI machines adding up for self-checkout and all of the AI machines talked. So they'd say, well, thank you for a robotic voice. Thank you for using our automated checkout. And I hope you're having a great day and stuff. And they were all going off at the same time. And I I thought I was going to go completely mental. And I'm thinking, have we, like, we've just handed over like sheep, any entitlement we had as customers to kind of drive our customer experience, right? We've just stopped You know, like we don't, and if you argue, you're a Karen, right? They just call you Karen. Now this may sound frivolous, but my theory is that all of this is driving us apart, right? Like there's a, there's a, um, a Sesame street song that goes, Oh, the shoemaker is the person in your neighborhood. <laughs> He's the person that you meet every day. And they go through all these jobs. Right. And the point of it is that people around you have jobs and you are a customer. There's those jobs. That's how you drive an economy, that's how you have a community, right? All of that is being blown up by Amazon and Ikea and all these big stores that are preventing us from having, you know, a community and a real customer experience, right? It's They're, they're for per for for only commercial purposes and and we're not to you know because I, I like it during covid i really missed that i wanted to go to nordstrom and try on a lipstick and talk to the girl at the counter just soup, you know that like they're taking all of that away from us now too right well shopping and on, I think
0: it's whether it's shopping on amazon or the self checkouts um it's creating disconnection and yeah. disconnection is trauma uh, and that might sound silly. Yes. to might sound silly to people, but the I've said, and my longtime listeners have heard me say, that the injury of trauma is disconnection. It disconnects you from yourself, from the person that used to be, from the person that yeah. you want to be, from your future, from your family. This is why it creates so many divorces because of the disconnection of your relationships. And that disconnect, we are social beings. We are pack animals. So every yeah. time uh, you trade a human interaction for, for Amazon shopping or the self-checkout um, and you miss out on that, you are disconnecting from society. And every time you do that, you're becoming a little less empathetic. You're becoming a little less human every time.
1: Yeah, I think it's true. And I, I, I don't know if this happened to you, but after the lockdowns kind of ended and we were allowed to go out for dinner again or into a store, I had trouble coping with it because that part of the brain that does what you just said had not been exercised, like an atrophied muscle, right? I was kind of like, oh, I don't know if I like this. I, I'm not sure I like being in this crowd right now, right? Which I used to love. Now, it's gone away and I like it now and I want more of it, which is why I'm bitching about IKEA and the self-checkout. But but, but it's it's funny how sick we can become if we are not exposed. And that's why, you know, getting sober in a 12-step program, it's all about fellowship, right? And when they put the 12-step programs on Zoom during COVID, I was like, what the hell are you guys thinking of? Because Zoom is not real life, right? You can't really make human connections over Zoom. It's better than nothing. I'm not telling anybody to avoid it if that's all they got. But I really believe that a lot of the lockdown deaths that were addiction-related were were because the 12-step programs didn't fight to stay open. During the, uh, during the lockdowns. And not in nor- nor churches, you know, hardly any churches did I. They were all thinking it was really, you know, this is God's will and it's really good, you know, public spirited to shut down right now. I just, I couldn't believe it.
0: I refused to get a vaccine passport because to me that was a two-tier system and just wrong, just morally wrong. And I've I never been able to articulate it properly as to how that really felt. But either way, I felt it necessary to refuse to get the vaccine passport. And because of that, the, the after effects, like once all that was dropped, I found it very, very difficult to go into places that had previously required the vaccine passport. And I have found myself turned from a very extroverted person and social person. I've turned into an introvert. And my theory is, and I'm curious what, um, if you've had a similar experience, but my theory is, is that, it's natural human reaction. If somebody rejects you, you reject them. And it feels like society rejected not just me, but my family and yeah. my children. Because uh, yeah. we weren't able to go to a movie because I refused to get a vaccine passport. Uh, based yeah. on I just found it morally reprehensible. And so because I've been rejected by society, it feels like society is no longer my friend. And I feel that I am now rejecting it. Does that make yeah. sense? Does that resonate with you? Totally.
1: I completely. Really. I also. I am vaccinated, and um, I feel the same way. And and after um, the vaccine passports were dropped, there were some places in my neighborhood, which is a pretty ritzy neighborhood. I'm not rich, but as I say on the show, I'm rich adjacent. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and they were some of the worst people. You know, the rich, older people who are were the most scared. Right. And the most and, you know, had the most um, kind of things at their disposal. So what happened when the when the vaccine passports were done away with, uh, quite a few restaurants here kept it going. And one of them called the Rosedale Diner. I'm going to call I didn't call them out before I'm doing it now. Um, in, a, in a newspaper article said, oh, we're doing it because our customers want it, right? So, so what does that say? That says that a bunch of their regular customers who got who got vaccinated, banded together with this restaurant, they a very popular little spot in this area, and decided they didn't want to let the riffraff in, right? So it's like they, they've dropped the requirement. That means that There's no health risk here anymore. So why are you keeping the unvaccinated people out? And I I think what happened partly was that the vaxxed versus unvaxxed cultural moment was also about rich versus poor because the unvaccinated um, outcry really was a lot from the working class. It was led by the truckers working class right there were not a lot of bankers and lawyers out there leading the charge against vaccines and vaccine mandates right there just weren't they were it was mostly blue-collar people who figured it out i mean they were the smart ones right so i think that that also and the prime minister's rhetoric that unvaccinated people are racist and misogynistic and they're this and they're that like the hate speech against unvaccinated people I think that also fueled the desire of various uh, institutions and restaurants and people to keep it going. I'm right?
0: I, I, not sure that I agree that it was a rich versus poor thing. Um, my take on it is that it's more fear versus those that aren't afraid and those that weren't afraid. Cause I live in Okotoks, so just uh, South of Calgary and the further you go from Okotoks, the more rural you go um, the less people cared about the lockdowns, uh, the less masks you see the less nervousness because the more rural you go, the the more you find people that can change their tire or work on their car.
1: Well, we're saying, I agree with you. We're saying the same thing. I shouldn't say that rural people are all working class but but, uh, but that's what I meant, right? That's that's kind of what I meant. The non-urban, precious, you know, laptop-dwelling people I, I think are the ones the, who think are this, less
0: afraid. The, the ones that are more self-sufficient is the, is probably the best word, yes, or the best phrase. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the more yeah. the, the more self-sufficient people were, the the less bothered they were by the lockdowns. Uh, and then as you go towards the downtown core, the closer you get to downtown, the less self-sufficient people are. The more that they rely on the system looking after them the more yeah. they, they they rely on uh societal structures but outside of societal structures where you got to shovel your own snow and and figure things out yourself um yeah. that's so it's that, that's why the more independent you are the less fear you had the less independent yeah. you are the more fear you had and then we, we saw how people behaved
1: Yeah. Yeah, we sure did. It really was. I mean, it did draw a very wide gap between, between the two. And we saw that in Ottawa too. You know, Ottawa is mostly populated by people who work for the government. Mm -hmm. They were all in on hating the truckers. I mean, you saw them at the, at the hearings, they were ridiculous. You know, well, they didn't actually do anything, but it was sort of a microaggression. So I really wanted them (laughs) gone. Really like you're just afraid of guys with testosterone driving trucks. That's what's going on. You don't know who they are. You don't know how to talk to them. You've never met one before. Um, Cause you got your degree, you know, at Carlton and you're working in some bureaucracy, right? They have no clue. They were just afraid of them and stupid. It was ridiculous. Ridic- they said the dumbest things about them. And the interesting part of the truckers, and I, I try to say this on every show I can, Virtually all of the criticisms made of the truckers were false and have been proven false, right? And the media went right with it. The politicians ran. I mean, I was told by somebody in the Ottawa Police Department that they had to watch while the news media and uh, politicians made hay of that fake arson story. They knew it wasn't real. They knew from day one that the truckers did not light that little tiny rinky dinky fire in that apartment building. They knew that. And yet, so there was no evidence of it. So, and yet nobody who was using it in, in the house of commons in their commentary about truckers bothered to call the cops and say, well, is this real? Or, you know, they just used it and used it the same way. They said they had guns in Ottawa, which they didn't have guns. And the money was coming from the proud boys. who so wasn't <laughs> the proud boys. Like all
0: BS. Well, my favorite is uh, that, and and he just lied under oath at the commission, the, I think it was the Ottawa police chief, uh, talking about Diagalon as this far-right group. Diagalon is a joke. It, it, it's a fiction. Yeah, so
1: I understand. I missed all that, but someone, look, it was just like a, like, what do you call it? It was not a meme, but, you know, one of
0: those it, 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 was a. It was a farce. It was a sarcastic. A was, farce. Um, uh, what's the word? Like he was doing a parody, you know. He was like, yeah, "Could you yeah, imagine could. a country if North America had a diagonal line going?" And we had one people on one side, and that was the border. The border was diagonal, and that's diagonal on. It, it was uh, it was a farce. There is no group. <laughs> there's there's no organization. It's uh, it's a military veteran who um, uh, just thought it up and, and thought it was funny. So he made a flag and he made a uh, coffee cup with a diagonal uh, logo on it, but there is no group. It doesn't exist. And yet the, and they know this and CESIS knows this, but um, the, <laughs> the police chief just lied his ass off saying that it's this uh, extremist group. There's no group whatsoever. Yeah. It's, it's completely yeah. false. And yet he said, it well, I think of there's the, a
1: lot of that. There's a lot of that going around now. I mean, it's the same in the States too, that, there do, the left does seem to be trying to demonize, you know, people who don't vote for them.
0: Well, it's <laughs> back all, to that. They're all
1: terrorists, it, right? They're all It's all back to the, Jane,
0: the Gene Elliott experience, uh, you know, experiment. People like to be superior. And when you tell one group that they are superior to another group, um, yeah. there's something dark inside us that instead of just going, oh, yay, I'm special, um, they we take it one step farther further and become hostile hostile yeah. to those that we feel are less human than we are and we see it in rich versus poor all the time but um, th- this is what happened with Vaxxed and unvaxed and it was all fueled by media and and Holy. by our by our government Holy. we're yeah. superior to you therefore I have the right to be hostile towards you and hate yeah. you and call you names and That's it's the worst. Uh, nobody's superior to anybody. <laughs> this, this is the problem, but uh, we saw the worst of us. There's no doubt.
1: Well, I'm hoping that, um, like I, I'm trying to find my way back to having more of a spiritual life. Cause I've been mm. so mad for two and a half years. Like I'm really, I'm really kind of triggered. I'm really, you know, I'm fired up and, um, I'm tired of it. And I, I've got to, you know, the the last American election this midterms is just I, I just feel so defeated for our brothers and sisters south of the border. I just you know, it's pretty clear that mail in balloting is a is a vehicle for cheating. I don't think any sane person can say it's not. And um but yeah, and yet if you say you're like an election denier, you know, it's just and then one part of America votes by mail in ballots that start like a month before and you don't even need a signature verification. And then, but the other party, they all vote in person on the same day. I mean, well, how can you have a system like that? Like, I know in the Carrie Lake case that she, thirty percent or something of the machine, the voting machines were down in Maricopa County. Like, and, oh, and that's where the Republicans vote. Yeah, like, and and the woman like Katie Hobbs, who is running against her, is also in charge of the. I mean. I just want to say, like, it's so obvious that there's cheating going on. Can I say that this happened on this day to get them over the the line in 2020? I was talking to Robert Barnes on Saturday on my my TNT radio show. I had him on to dissect the election. And, and he thinks, and I, I think the mistake they made in the midterms is that the cheating is so obvious with the balloting, this mail-in balloting stuff, that it actually makes me look now back at 2020 and realize my instincts were correct. I thought, wow. Remember on, um, I don't know if you are watching the election, but Trump was sort of winning in four toss-up states. And it was like everyone was coming up red, you know, for Trump. And then they all said at the same time, we're stopping counting now. It was like 10 o'clock at night. They said, we're stopping counting and we're not going to start again until tomorrow. And then they were slow. There's all these slow rolling of the ballots coming in, like a little drop here. Oh, and that drop takes away that. Like, it was just ridiculous. And somebody said, a guy, his name is, I think his name is uh, The Last Refuge, is what he writes under on Twitter. He's a really smart conservative guy. Um, he did a Twitter thread the other day that's really caught on with people because it makes sense. And that is this, that Republicans... Vote, Democrats ballot right. They they so there's two separate things, and most countries in the Western world don't have mail-in voting in a, in a in an extreme way. You know, for like maybe if you're a diplomat or you're whatever, you can maybe do a little bit of it with huge you know security things attached to it. But they've got like wide open, don't even need a signature in some states. It's like ridiculous, right? And he said that that as long as it is those two things, Republicans same day voting, Democrats balloting, they just send out all these ballots that come back, who knows who signed them, whatever. And their ballot harvesting is going on in all these old age, of course they're cheating. I <laughs> mean, and as long as that's allowed to go on. I think Republicans can never win a big majority again like they did under Trump. I don't think they will. They've got to figure it out.
0: Well, it's difficult for me to fathom that John Fetterman won anything
1: <laughs> I know right brain damage, basketball shorts, slovenly no no never had a job. You know what the hell is going on there? What the hell? What well, the, the hell?
0: there's something that's quite bizarre. I mean, Biden still has supporters. His his, his approval yeah. rate is extraordinarily low, but not nearly as low as you would think would be. Uh, the man is clearly in mid to late stage dementia. And yep. th- th- that's not a conspiracy theory. It's an obvious, nope. it's, an, it's an observation. It's, it's Well, look, clear, it's an easy
1: fix, right? It's an easy fix. Just show us your last cognitive test. Let's see your last cognitive test. Put it out there. We'll have a look at you. They won't do that. They right? not do it.
0: No, he's uh, he's so far gone. It's it's yeah. bizarre. I don't know what they keep pumping him full of uh, every uh, before he gets in front of the microphone, but it's working less and less every time. Yeah, and because
1: Adderall probably, but <laughs> something. <laughs>
0: yeah, but uh, and yet he keeps keeps going anyway. But yeah. uh, I just want to roll back the clock a little bit. Back to your book. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What was asked sure of is. us now? It, there's been some interesting... Beautiful, thank you, for our video Look audience. Look at the cover.
1: Isn't that lovely? Look at the beautiful soldiers there.
0: It is so a little bit. Yeah,
1: yeah it was Little Brown, a big publisher, too. It was good.
0: A lot of interesting accolades have been said about your book. Um, a game-changing book on the Iraq War, one person said. Another that if you're only going to read one book on war, this is it. Um, yeah. What I am wondering about is collecting all of those stories that must have yeah. been I'm assuming that must have been difficult for you I mean you've you've got such a background you you have covered serial killers and I mean, you, you, you've <laughs> yeah. gone to some really really dark places um, yeah. but collecting all these stories for this book how did that affect you
1: Oh, ask my kids. I mean, it was brutal. Like, I, I cried for two years because the other thing, like, well, it's, it's, it's the intensity of the story. I have boys, so I was really, these are all kids, my kids' age, right, these guys. So that was really hard. Um, and I was also in the, I was in groups of them. So I would get calls from guys saying, I'm sitting in a pickup truck with a gun in my mouth, right? What, what, what do I do? and I'd have to kind of alert the lads, you know, who would go and stop it. I mean, that's how great, like at two in the morning, that's how crazy it was. So, you know, I was, I, I say, I actually dedicate the book to my kids because I, I feel like I was sort of absent, you know, for two years. I mean, you can't, you can't do this unless you're really, really empathetic and that's what makes you good at it, right? But it also means that you pay a pretty serious price of your own mental health for a while but you know what who cares about me like what they actually lived it right that was you know it was hard on me was 10 times as hard on them you know and I felt very um uh, uh lucky I felt very lucky that they trusted me with those stories and it's sort of funny because I didn't stay that close with them I thought oh yeah we'll be friends forever and it's not that we're not close, but they, like I said before, when we were talking about this, they just wanted to deposit the story somewhere, right? And um, and so they deposited the story with me. I um, transcribed them and ran them virtually without edits. So I cleaned them up, you know, but yeah. So yeah, it was hard. It was hard.
0: I have found so many people that interview soldiers and and get the war stories all the time, Um, including uh, Al Cameron up in uh, in Sylvan Lake. He's interviewed hundreds uh, of soldiers. But the problem is that these are not shared. They're not made for public consumption. They end up in an archive or at at a museum and uh, just not for public conception. There's a few others uh, off the top of my head, Dixon Christie with his battle scars uh, series, um, uh, Robert Curtin and Karen Storwick I had on the show. Uh, But the work that they've done, which is wonderful, if it's not shared, what's the point?
1: What's the point? Yeah. Yeah, I know. It's an interesting question. I mean, the book, as you said, the book was really well-received. The New York Times loved it. The San Francisco Chronicle ran two full pages, two full newspaper pages about it. They said it was the only book about Iraq that matters, right? It was very, very well received, but the public didn't buy it. Mm. And I think the public does not want to know these stories. I actually, I think the really nitty gritty, gruesome truth about war is something that the general public wants to stay away from, unless it's kind of like, um, you know, I mean, some store, some movies have kind of broken through. Um, what's the one about the second world war and it's like 10 parts and it's really, I've forgotten, but, but, and it's quite gruesome, especially the Auschwitz, you know, episode is pretty gruesome, but I think people don't want to know about it. Why would you buy a book that's so sad? Why would you buy a book that's so, grim you know and I feel also that there you, you you, know you're confronted by your own guilt as a citizen for not being more careful about who you send your kids off to war to fight right like I mean Dick Cheney and Rumsfeld those guys they were morons they were complete morons you know there were some very good generals there for sure and uh, one of my favorites is Colonel McGregor who I've had on the show he wasn't in Iraq I don't think but he did led a famous tank battle I think in the first Iraq war um but I, I think people want they want they like the distance in between themselves and the actual experience beyond the kind of cardboard story we see, you know, in two minute news stories on the on the nightly news.
0: Well, the true gruesomeness of, of war is rarely, if ever, captured in film. Um we see bits and pieces of it and but even if it was captured correctly, it's it's impossible to grasp uh, w- without actually experiencing it. So I don't know the answer to your question, and I'm a little distracted by the hammering I can hear in the background. Oh,
1: can you hear it now? Can you oh, hear yeah. it now? Is it distra- yeah, yeah? Okay, yeah. I wasn't sure if it was. Yeah, we should probably end pretty soon. But but I, you know, I will say that um, I did see a movie about war. It was, uh, it was the one where they got that little armada from the UK to come over in private fishing boats to save, I forgot what it was called, but, and it starts off with this great battle on the beach, right? And everybody's getting blown up and there was no blood. They totally sanitized it. Like there was no blood. And I turned to my kid and I said, I can't watch this. Like, why are we not showing what happens when you shoot a guy in the face? Why why are we just pretending it's all hunky-dory? Because we have to show the soldiers' experience. If we're going to send them there, well, we can't even look at it. Like, they have to live it, and we can't even put it in a movie. It's too, we're too fragile. What did you then think of better... uh,
0: Hyena Road? I haven't seen it yet. Should I? With Paul Gross? I haven't seen it. Uh, it's pretty good. You know, I mean, I've never been in Afghanistan, so... Uh, I'm I would, writing it down. I would have to talk to some Afghanistan vets to see what they thought. Yeah. But there were certain... Parts of Hyena Road um, that I thought were really good, and uh, and that did capture it. There's a calm that some people show in battle um, when, yeah. when bullets are flying that doesn't make sense to most people, but uh, I've seen yeah. it uh, and I, I've experienced it myself. I and it, that was depicted that calm of of the main character. And also the sa- the self-sacrificing uh, uh, that I, I won't give a spoiler for, but what happens at the end was um, that one hit me because I was like, yeah, that is what we would do. Yes, that is how that would happen. And yeah. um, I thought it was good personally.
1: Yeah, well, I'll mark it down because I need new things to watch. Hacksaw Ridge, is I think it has come up on Netflix and... There's a whole bunch of new warish kind of things that I, I want to have a look at. But like I say, if something is really sanitized, I'm not interested in it. I think it's an insult to do it that way.
0: Well, I think you might enjoy the, um, the one I just did with the daughter of Tommy Prince. Uh, Tommy Prince, the most okay. high, highest decorated indigenous soldier of all time. Um, and Aww. And the whole reason that the Devil's Brigade got their name was through this man. And yet, okay. uh, he's been largely I'm in. largely forgotten.
1: Yeah, terrible. Okay, well, I'll watch it. Great.
0: All right, my friend. Well, I think we're about there.
1: Yeah, and they're just starting up here. This is Midtown Toronto life now. Everything is always under construction, and our quality of life is terrible because it's <laughs> noisy,
0: right? Oh, I thought you were on the West Coast.
1: No, I'm in Midtown. I'm at Young and Saint Clair in Midtown Toronto. Like this is a like dystopian hellscape of condo construction around here now it's ruined (laughs) it it's completely ruined it
0: well thank you so much uh, Trish for spending some time with me today it's been an absolute treat to get to know you
1: and if any of the anybody watching wants to contact me at info at com, I always respond to soldiers who want to share emails so I'll do that
0: and I'll have a link to your book in the bio of the audio version of the podcast which uh, is available on all the major platforms, and
1: I'll send you one to give away. Oh. Okay, just yeah, just give one away, I'm, and I'll do a draw or something, and I'll
0: perfect. Sort it out. I'll send you my okay. address. I appreciate that. Okay, Trish, please stay on the line. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Hello friends, thank you for tuning in to Operation Tango Romeo, the trauma recovery podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. We are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible, with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. Please support this mission by subscribing to and rating the show on your favorite podcast channel, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google spotify anchor or anywhere else by doing so you'll help others find the help which just might save their life also please help by sharing a link to the show on all of your social media channels every time a new episode drops and always remember to recover out loud